episode two of the Off the X podcast. I'm Cody. Uh, talk to a former diplomatic security special agent of 27 years, Michael Perkins, on this podcast, and he has uh, quite the career. Michael served the Washington Field Office at Secretary's Detail as an assistant regional security officer at the U.S. Embassy in Guatemala City. He was with mobile security deployments from 98 to 2001, U.S. Embassy Lusaka, where he was a regional security officer. He was a deputy regional security officer at the U.S. Embassy in Lima, Peru, regional security officer in Colombo, Sri Lanka. And then he had an interesting position that uh, you don't hear about much in DS, or outside of DS, I should say, where he served as the director of the International Law Enforcement uh, Academy. And that's in San, that, that one is in San Salvador. There's several around the world. Uh, but he's the first director of the academy that comes from diplomatic security. Uh, then he ended his tour in, in DS uh, uh, at the Houston field office. He went in as a soup and uh, finished as a special agent in charge. So we talked about a lot, um, almost two hours. Actually, it was a little over two hours. We talked about several things, uh, including his time protecting Princess Diana. Um, I thought the Colombo Sri Lanka story uh, was fantastic. Uh, just because there was a civil war going on, and he had some 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 uh, well, some pretty cool things that, that went on that he had to, that he had to take care of, uh, being responsible for uh, you know safety and security of U.S. personnel, uh, property, and information. So it was a yeah, it was a great interview. Michael has offered uh, for anyone that may have additional questions, just whether it be questions about the story or questions about. DS in general, and you know, from a senior level perspective, uh, he's he's willing to to field some questions. So uh, I'll at the end of this, I will uh, send uh, let, let you guys know what his IG Instagram uh, handle is, and you can hit him up. Great guy, uh, and and uh, full of ton of information. This whole podcast, although they're anecdotal stories, there is a ton of information for those of you that are aspiring DS agents. You can kind of uh, garner some intel on how life is at embassies. And for the less popular, oftentimes, of our duties in DS, which are protection, investigations, and security management, for the security management portion, he has some uh, a ton of good information that might actually get people excited. So anyway, hope you enjoy the podcast, and I'll catch you on the backside. Thanks, y'all. And we can get going. Um, so, Michael, thank you for coming on, sir. My pleasure. If uh, if my math for Marines is correct, you did 26 years in diplomatic security. Is that right? 27. So your your math, okay. your Marine math is perfect. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. You know, uh, just yeah. short of tw- just short of 27. Actually, I'll, I'll give you that. So okay, all right. So on, I'm somewhere, on, I'm somewhere on the, the re- on the record book since I was able to. Uh, since I had uh, 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 leave that I hadn't used, et cetera, I was able to, you know, actually get a retirement for 27 years, but but just short of 27 on the calendar. Okay, well, that's awesome. What uh, so what did you do before DS, and uh, and and what year did you come in? Okay, 
Before Diplomatic Security, I was a police officer. Well, first I was a sheriff's deputy in Washita Parish, Louisiana for two and a half years, and then a police officer in West Monroe for 11, or just short of 11. And uh, I came on with Diplomatic Security. My my class started October 10th of 1991 was when we actually did our intake. And then uh, after training, et cetera, actually started in the Washington field office uh, April, I think April of 1992, so May of 1992, something like that. Were so you I was a cop in- before. Oh, okay. No, I wasn't in Inman Hire. I was right at the end of the Inman Hire. Okay. I often hear the Inman Hire stories. It seems they're a very proud group. Uh, they are, but you know that they uh, they there was a lot of changes that, that the department uh, instituted as they were coming on, and the uh, the agency has changed a lot since I came on in 1992. More authority, uh, although we rarely use it, <laughs> with more authority than we had when I came on. I mean, you wouldn't believe some of the stuff, the hoops we had to jump through when I first came on the job. Uh, we actually had to leave our guns in our lockers if we weren't doing protection or doing criminal cases. If we were oh, wow. we're doing background investigations mostly. And that was in the Washington field office because WUFO was such a uh, a body pool, I put it that way, for protected details, you know, for dignitary protection, DP and secretary's detail, SD. So of the I can't remember how many units I had, six or eight units in WFO at the time. One was a criminal unit through which we eventually all rotated if we were uh, lucky enough. And then the rest, let's see, there's one unit that was nothing but BIs, but it was an old uh, retired DS and FBI agents, kind of like I am now doing BIs in the Houston area. So that unit was old contractors. And then the other six units, we, we just did protection almost all the time. And when we weren't doing protection, we, uh, and, and if we weren't lucky enough to be doing our rotation through the, the crim unit, we were doing background investigations. Uh, so if we were doing a background investigation, we had to lock our, uh, issued revolvers by the way, cause I, we started with revolvers. We had to lock them up in the, in the locker and our supervisors would actually check and make sure that they were locked up. So what did people like me, me, uh, who were former police officers, do? Well, we carried our <laughs> we carried our own gun because <laughs> I wasn't going to okay. knock on the door uh, of some unknown house. Uh, and you know, even though most of the people we were doing bis on were the reinvestigations of people who were already on the job, so it wasn't like they were living in, uh, you know, in in. Uh, neighborhoods that were dicey uh but still you know you could be knocking on the door of somebody's house they don't know who you are so you those of us who were smart enough and had our own we carried our own <laughs> yeah i don't blame you so yeah so you know i was when did when did ds relinquish doing local uh doing background investigations domestically because we don't from my understanding at least agents don't do that anymore we did them overseas if you didn't have you know a, a person assigned to do it but you know what year that that ended uh no actually i don't because uh like i said it well i left 
WFO in 1994, so and went up from there. I went to SD, and I don't ever remember an active duty agent ever contacting me to do an update about somebody that I worked with. Uh, so, you know, using me as a developed source or a reference. So, I, I it was probably circa 1994. And then when I'm glad, I was I'm glad in, it ended, yeah, yeah, when I went to um, where was I 2000. And one, when I was the RSO in Lusaka, it was about the time that headquarters elements of, uh, uh, was it personnel suitability, security and suitability, PSS, they started allowing uh, RSOs overseas to hire contractors to do their background investigation for them. So somewhere around then, okay, I would suspect. That makes sense. I had to do them in, in Ho Chi Minh City just because it was a I was the only air so um and it was you know, it was for the mostly for diplomats there and they just come sit at my desk and I would just kind of check the box, you yeah. know, make sure everything's done and send it back. It was it was the worst part of being an RSO or an ARSO is background investigations. I didn't like them. Well, the whatsoever. worst part of it I think is when, especially when you're doing them on uh you know, current State Department employees, because after a while we get blasé about the about the investigations and about you know keeping our security clearance up, you know, et cetera. So the questions, in many cases, are more appropriate to new hires or somebody who's not already on the job. But you know, every once in a while, you come across somebody who's gotten themselves jammed up, and uh, they affect their own security clearance and. Uh, people are reluctant to talk to you about what they know about that individual. And even though it's a, it is a, it's an onerous task when you're an RSO or an ARSO because of all the other things that you have to do. And uh, the BEI program is, you know, low on your totem pole or on your list of, you know, uh, life safety issues, if you want to put it that way. You're trying to keep the embassy safe, and so doing a background investigation on a political officer or your own uh, RSO is probably way down on your list of things to do. And they're they're not fun, but what I do like about they're not fun if you're doing them on a, a reinvestigation again because of the the way that State Department employees look at the the job, the task of doing a background investigation. But they are fun to me now because. Before COVID, I put it that, that way, it got me out of the house and, uh, you know, I got to see people that in places I wouldn't ordinarily have traveled to in, in Houston or, you know, I, I've done them all the way over to Baytown. So, um, I mean, they were kind of and you're talking to people who want to get a job or you're talking to people's friends who want to help them get a job. So. It's kind of fun when you're doing them on somebody who's not already in the in the department, if that mm. makes sense. Okay. <laughs> but I didn't like them doing them either when I was a the, my first overseas tours in ARSO, the RSO, and, and this was in Guatemala City. He assigned me the investigation program, and what did that mean? Well, it meant background investigations. <laughs> so oh, man. I wasn't I wasn't high on them at the time either. That's no good. So uh, let's talk about Whiffle, man. I want to hear some stories. I know you okay, got some well, stories. You got any good ones in WIFO at Washington Field Office? I think I do. Most of them are protection related, but I'm going to start out with this. My, my, my class was the oldest class that diplomatic security had ever hired. 
and they actually announced that to us when we started, when we did our intake on that day on uh, October 10th, 1991. And the person who was in charge of the training center at that time came in to, you know, give us our rah-rah speech. He said, you are the oldest class that diplomatic security has ever hired in the history of, of the department. I'm not quite so sure if that was true, but I was one month shy of my 35th birthday, and that was a cutoff date at the time. And then we had one guy in my class who DS has actually brought on uh, a week or two ahead of time because he turned 35 before our class started. And then there was a handful of us who were former police officers. I think everybody that was of the eight was at right at 35. So we're right at the, at the cutoff age. All of us, five or six of us were police officers from various places around the country. We just thought it was funny that, that, uh, that we were the elder statesmen, so to speak, <laughs> of diplomatic Quite the accomplishment. We were, we're brand, brand new on the job. <laughs> Yeah, how so many? What, how many was? How many were in your class back then? I think we. I, I think we only had thirty, maybe. Yeah, I believe it was thirty. Uh, okay. And when we went to Fletzy for our class, we had. Uh, I think the class size at Fletzy at the time was forty. So we had ten other people from other agencies. We had OIGs from. Um, Department of Energy, from the Department of Interior, from uh, um, uh, Food and Drug Administration. So it was 30 DS agents and 10 other folks uh, in, Flet- in Fletzy with us. And then we went, of course, we did the add-on and, and uh, done lowering after we graduated from Fletzy. Okay. So here's a good story. My first uh, uh, overseas assignment with diplomatic security. So uh, it was in the summer of 1992, I think it was like July of 1992. Every other agent in the entire field office was in Washington doing uh, protection on some visiting dignitaries, not in Washington. They were in New York. I'm sorry. They were in New York doing uh, dignitary protection. And me and another agent who was my classmate, we were the only two that were left behind for whatever reason. Well, you know, reason why we don't know why we didn't get to go. So we were doing everything we could to stay out of the office. I think we went and uh, went down to the range twice in one week just to get out of the office and, and quote, recall, unquote, or maybe do a fan fire or something like that. So. And we we go back to the office and, you know, we're grumbling and moaning and, you know, bitching and raising hell uh, between the two of us because why, why aren't we in, in Washington? I mean, in New York with doing dignitary protection. When our supervisor came in and said, hey, you two are going to uh, Israel this afternoon and you're flying out at five o'clock. Get over to SD and go get your tickets. <laughs> and this is like at 11 o'clock in the morning. So we we ran over to uh, SD, uh, you know, knocked on their door at the time. I think they're on the second floor of Main State at the time, uh, and uh, opened up the door. Hey, I'm Mike Perkins, and this is uh, Jim Murphy from WUFO. We understand that we've been assigned to go do a TDY uh, for SD. So there was an SD agent sitting on the on the couch in the vestibule of the office there. And she jumps up and goes, 
fucking temps, sending fucking temps to do advances. <laughs> so I looked at my friend Jim. I said, "Jim, welcome to SD." <laughs> and that was our that was our introduction to the secretary of detail. Some. Uh, uh, full-time agent on SD raising hell because we had been assigned to do, uh, do advances in, uh, in Israel. You know, the so history can, of, of, of SD that are the kind of the persona, I know it's changed over the years, but that when I came in as well, they were like S- SD, you know, they rely on temps, but, but they, they, it's the kind of, at least we thought they kind of snubbed their nose at temps. And I, and I learned over the years, they got so much better, but, what you're telling me is what people have told told us all along, particularly with new agents, that they just kind of, you know, look down on, on temp agents. Yeah, well, later when I was assigned to uh, SD full-time, and I'll get back to my Israel story in a second. When I was assigned to SD full-time, there's one uh, guy on the, on the de- detail who was bitching about the, the temps. And I said, you know what? The only thing those guys do, and I was talking about temps, that uh, they do that that, that we – is different from what we do is they don't know how and where to back the cars in to uh, the uh, command center like we do. And I said, other than that, we're doing the same things that they do. We're just doing it full time. So I said, I really don't want to hear you complaining about, uh, about temps. Cause I, yeah. you know, yeah, it just, again, agents are agents, right? And it gives people the bad name, bad taste in their mouth when you treat them poorly. I mean, again, we all went through the same training, the only thing difference what different was you have agents signed full time to detail who know okay this is how we park the cars and this is where we go and this is when we pick up thus and so so you know they do the same thing so you know get, get cut them some slack. So anyhow, we pick up our tickets from SD. Uh, I lived out at Manassas at the time, so I had to fly you know fly load get out to Manassas to pack up my my shit and get. Uh, get ready to then go to Dulles, uh, made it in time to get on a plane. Uh, of course we went to, they say we started out in Tel Aviv because, uh, the hotel in Jerusalem was, uh, the King David hotel. And this is when James Baker was the secretary of state, by the way, <laughs> the, uh, King David hotel was booked up for, first week we were there while doing advances and and it wasn't going to uh, be free, be available for us to stay in uh, until about two days before Baker, before Baker arrived. So we had to, um, (laughs) we had to commute back and forth from uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which is about an hour uh, drive if I remember correctly. But it was our first time overseas, and so what did one night Jim and I went out, we decided we were going to hit the bars on one side of the road and hit the bars coming all the way back to the hotel, and we barely made it to our meeting the next day, I'm telling you. That sounds like a <laughs> solid plan, to, though, to, to, yeah, get the, yeah, to get the party started. <laughs> exactly, man. It's like, here we are. We're, who knows how many times or if ever we're going to get back to uh, Tel Aviv. So... Um, and it was a, I mean, we really worked hard. I was doing the hotel advance or the residence advance. So I was in charge of the security at the King David Hotel. And of course, liaison with the shin bet is never easy because they love to lecture and tell you how to do your job. Uh, Jim was doing the site advances at the Knesset and a couple other places. I can't, I can't remember, of course, where all Baker went at the time because I was stuck at the hotel. Uh, 
And um, so they, I was out doing a, a foot patrol, for lack of a better term, scoping out the area, doing a, a, a reconnaissance. And uh, so I noticed this really young, probably about 14 or 15-year-old uh, Hasidic kid. He would just hanging around the hotel and hanging around the hotel. So, you know, I said, okay, I'm going to go up and talk to him see what's going on. So he says, I'm here to see Jim. I want to see Jim. When is Jim coming in? <laughs> so he's talking about Secretary Baker. And I said, well, i tell you what. You give me your name, and uh, when, when Jim gets here, I'll tell him you would like to see him. I said, but I can't guarantee you that you're going to get an appointment, but I will tell him. <laughs> so... Uh, my favorite uh, vignette from that trip was, have you ever been to in the King David Hotel yourself, Cody? No, I haven't. I haven't been to Israel. I missed a trip uh, with my current job recently. Um, but but no, it's, it's so definitely a place on my list that I want to get out to. I hope you get a chance to go, and I hope I get a chance to go, time, go back sometime in the future as a, as a tourist rather than having to work. Uh, but in the King David hotel, uh, the, the, the VIP elevator can hold maybe four people. If every one of you hold your breath and sucks in your gut. Okay. okay. So, uh, of course the shin bed said, this is the elevator that, uh, that we use for the secretary. And, you know, okay. So I've taken on any internal moves. I take the secretary from his suite down to the, uh, uh, where he had a press conference or where he was meeting uh, dignitaries, whatever. So we get on the elevator for the first time, my first time with James Baker. He's, you know, breathing down my neck, basically. And elevator starts to move. And behind me says, whose idea was it to stuff me into this fucking elevator? And I said, of course, I'm thinking to myself, those damn shin bet, they have screwed me. <laughs> they're trying to they're trying to embarrass me by making me use this elevator. And all of a sudden, Baker elbows me, says, I'm kidding you, son. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, he knew that I was new to the detail. He probably had asked the, uh, the agent in charge of the detail if, you know, who I was or whatever. And he just decided he's going to play a joke on me. And uh, from then on, it was just uh, every time he got on the elevator, he smiled and I smiled. And we just we got along famously. How was he with the agents? Was he, was he good with other agents as well? You treat him good? Oh, they, oh his detail loved him to death. That it, yeah. There's always a little bit of a, um, I would say, a little bit of, uh, I won't say rivalry, but friction is the best way to put it, between the secretary's detail and a presidential uh, protected detail, PPD or whatever the hell they call it, and it, uh, the Secret Service. And uh, sometimes the Secret Service would try to stop SD from going, you know, in this side or that side or whatever. So uh, James Baker was such a good friend with, uh, you know, the Bush one that they would tell James Baker, hey, you know, they're not letting us in this this site. And James Baker would get on the phone with, with George. George, your boys are messing with my boys again. And next thing you know, you'd be, uh, they said you'd be in the site. Oh, that's, that, awesome. that's that's what I heard from the other, from the, from the SD agents. I mean, they loved him to death. 
They really did. So yeah. I think he was he was really good with them. Oh, that's good. When 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 you went on the SD a couple of years later, uh, let's move on to that. Okay. In the interest of time, and uh, well, one who was who was the secretary then was it still Baker or uh, sounds like it switched off. No, it was Warren Christopher then. So it was right at, right at the beginning of uh, Clinton's administration. Okay. And uh, so Warren Christopher was the uh, secretary. He was a really great guy too with us. I mean, we we all really liked him. He was a little standoffish at first, and. <laughs> Uh, there was another one of my classmates, but, uh, I don't think either one of us look alike. Uh, Paul is a little bit taller than me, maybe a couple of inches, but we both, uh, wear round glasses. So I guess, uh, one day Christopher, uh, mistook me for Paul and, uh, uh, I'm taking him up to the seventh floor in the elevator at Main State. And as he gets on the, and I was waiting for him to get on the elevator. And as he gets on, he says, morning, Paul. And I say, you know, morning, Mr. Uh, Secretary Christopher. So we get about halfway up and he says, you know, I know your name is not uh, Paul, but I, uh, but I can't remember your name. So I told him, Michael, he never failed to call me by my first name for the, for the next two years. Never failed. He had a book and he would, he would see where we were from. And, uh, you know, we chatted a little bit. And at that time, I don't know what SD does now, but who drives the secretary around. But at that time, of course, the SD agent was a limo driver. And he got in the limo one time. It was a bitter cold day in January, February in Washington. And uh, he had been at a meeting at the White House. So he uh, jumps in the in the limo, in the back of the limo, he goes, Bruh! he said, man, it's cold. He said, I bet it's not this cold in Louisiana, is it, Michael? I said, no, sir, it's sure not. <laughs> so he was a, a gentleman. He learned who we, he learned our names. He learned where we were from. He took an interest in us, We interest in, an interest in us. Uh, he would run every morning at 11 o'clock and I'm sorry, at four o'clock in the morning at an 11 mile an hour pace. That's what it, where I was getting 11 from, but he would step out of his, uh, you know, his door, front door at, you know, four, four thirty in the morning. And we would jog, uh, around Georgetown with him and, uh, we would just chat while we were jogging and he was a good, a really nice, interesting person. And he took an interest in you getting toward the end of my tour with SD. He asked me where I wanted to go. And I told him some of the posts that uh, I had bid on. So he was a, he was, he was a really nice man. He was a gentleman. He was a consummate diplomat. In my opinion, he wasn't one of the best secretary of states we ever had, because I think the secretary of state sometimes needs to be a little bit, bit of a bully. And he wasn't, he was a con- consummate diplomat. And, you know, we, we, we loved him to death. So at least I did. I'm pretty sure the uh, the feelings were the same among the agents who were who worked with him. We all really liked him. I think it's such a big deal when you enjoy the person you're protecting, when you enjoy their company, or you just like them as a human, and they treat you like a human. You know, not that you're not going to protect them if they if they treat you with less respect. I, I, the the two secretaries I've had the opportunity to protect, they weren't disrespectful. They just weren't personable like like Christopher was. Uh, like like you're saying, Christopher was, or uh, before I came on, Condi Rice. Apparently, she was very similar. That she was up at four in the morning exercising, 
And she was very respectful and, and tried to learn the agent's names. Um, and I just think that to me, it's important as a DS agent, maybe it shouldn't be it, to a lot of guys it'd probably say it's not, but uh, I just think it, uh, it, it makes the job that much better. Yeah. You know, I mean, you if you have somebody, if you have somebody who treats you with respect and doesn't, uh, you know, they, they don't make you wait hours on end in before they come out of the, uh, come out of the house when you're expecting to leave at, you know, zero hour and they come out at zero hour plus three with no word in between about, you know, well, we're going to, you know, we're being delayed or whatever. So it does make, it's a, it makes a huge difference when, when the person that you're protecting shows, you know, that they respect you as a human being. Here's another story about Christopher. We had, he would go out to, uh, Santa Barbara, California, he had a, a vacation home. We had a home in Santa Barbara, and he would take his vacations out there. And we'd spend probably uh, two or three times a year, we'd spend you know, two or three weeks at a time. Uh, half the detail would spend half the time out there with him, and then we would rotate. So I was out there at Christmas one time, and I was working mids on Christmas and invariably, well, we did. Wrote, we we wor- had to work the back of the house because it backed up to uh, the ocean, and then we would you know, had the limo was in or the uh, the Overwatch car basically, but in the front. So we had somebody in the front, somebody in the back, and we'd rotate all night long. So I was uh, just about to get off duty, probably eight or nine o'clock in the morning. And he came out and said, Michael, I'm sorry that you're having to work Christmas time here with me. Uh, but I just want you to know, I appreciate that you're here. So that was nice, right? So yeah. it was really nice. So absolutely. And my family had come out there with me. He didn't know that, but my family was out there with me. So we spent a wonderful Christmas uh on the U.S. government's dime in Santa yeah. Barbara, California. <laughs> you know, that's one of the things I should talk about in, in uh, the YouTube videos I do is, is you, you get to do that. You know, you get to travel places and, and if you want to, you know, pay for your family to fly out, they can sometimes share that hotel room with you. Yeah. You know, when I was on, when I was on it, when I was on MSD a few years later, uh, the, um, we were doing uh, the cat team on, I think there's the Iraqi foreign minister at the time. Maybe it was even the Iranian foreign minister. I'm not sure. Cause this is like 2000 and no, 1998 uh, to 2001. I was on SD. So this is like circa 2000. Right. And uh, so we were just doing the cat team stuff. So we basically would, you know, if he wasn't moving, then they cut SD loose. I mean, cut MSD loose. So, in, invariably, in the afternoons, we'd be we'd be done at four o'clock because the the protectee again. I can't remember which foreign Iraqi or Iranian foreign minister it was, but we'd go back to the hotel. Well, uh, my wife came up to New York City. That's the only time of the umpteen times I had done protection in in New York City that she was able to come up there. And we actually were able to do things in the evening because being again, I was on MSD and we weren't working in the evenings. So we got to do and see a little bit of New York city in the evening. Now during the daytime, she did some of her uh, tourist stuff, like go to the top of the empire state building and go to Macy's and, you know, go do a few things by herself. Cause I was working, but we, in the evening mm-hmm. we, we, we strolled down to little, little Italy 
and we caught a street fair. Unbeknownst to us, there was a street fair going on in Little Italy, and so we ducked into the first uh, Italian restaurant we could find and imagined it was a fantastic Italian meal. Uh, you know, we just we did uh, some of the tourist things at night. It was too late for us to get any tickets to a Broadway show. And now that Broadway's closed down, I really kicked myself <laughs> that we didn't get a chance to go see one. But like you said, if you want to spend uh, on your dime and have your family come over and they can go places or you can see things with them that you might not ever have gotten a chance to see. Perks of the job. Exactly. Any notable Stories? Did you have any notable uh, trips on SD? That, uh, I'm going to go have... back and talk about Princess Diana. Oh, because that'd be I great. got I, I got to protect Princess Diana when I was uh, uh, in the in Woofo in the Washington field office. So this was about this must have been December of 1997 because I left. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, 92, so not December of 93 or 94. Um, she had had stopped doing with her, her um, official business as the princess because she was separating from her, had just announced that she was going to separate from, from Charles. And so she was coming over to the United States without her protection. And the Ambassador, British ambassador, frantically calls diplomatic security or however the diplomatic security got the call and said, Diana's on her way to the United States and she doesn't have any protection. So I get a call from Wolfo because I lived at the time, again, in Manassas. I lived close enough to Dulles. And they said, put on a suit, go out to Dulles and wait for Diana to get off the SST. At the time, the Concorde flew into uh, flew into Dulles. And so, and, and it said, meanwhile, we're going to round up some more troops and we're going to be out there with, uh, with the limos and the follow car, et cetera, et cetera. So I get out there and, uh, I'm waiting for, uh, where those people movers at the time, Dulles had people movers and people mover rolls up to the, to the terminal door opens up, out comes uh, princess Diana and she looks at me and she stops dead in her tracks. She so she says, I should have known. <laughs> I should have known I couldn't sneak away. <laughs> <laughs> so by the time the, the rest of the detail had gotten there, and we spent uh, a week and a half with her. Uh, she was, I think it was the Brazilian ambassador's wife was her, was her godmother. Or maybe it's the Bolivian ambassador. I can't remember which, but the the. Uh, South American ambassador to the United States. His wife was her godmother. So he was spending, she was spending uh, the week, week and a half with her godmother. So we spent a week and a half uh, trying to get around Washington, D.C. with a paparazzi chasing us all over the place. I mean, you know, we, we couldn't go anywhere that the paparazzi didn't follow us. So, I took her to, I was doing the advances, I was doing the site advances, and I go to the uh, National Gallery of Art and uh, talking to the security there. And they, uh, yeah, I'm telling them about how the paparazzi's following her everywhere and she can hardly move without getting their picture taken or whatever. And they offered to pin the press at the, uh, which is basically the paparazzi because it wasn't really any 
real press. I'll put it that way. So, uh, Diana, the motorcade shows up and, you know, as we do, we tell the uh, agent charge or tell the shift leader, you know, I'm here, uh, X person from meet and greet, no press on site or whatever. Well, there was no press on site. The press followed them all the way over there. They ran red lights trying to keep up with the, with the motorcade. The motorcade was, you know, going, you know, turning on the red lights and going through, uh, traffic lights and the paparazzi were running red lights to chase down Diana. So they get there and they pin the press up and, you know, they're the, the press complained to, to the main state, big states, uh, public affairs. So I got raked over the coals by public affairs, not DS public affairs, mind you, but I got by state department public affairs. I got a, a call from the command center. You need to call thus and so in public affairs. So I did whoever it was. She raked me over the coals for having the audacity to make the, the press stay there. And I said, well, first of all, I did what I was taught to do. I pinned the press up. And second of all, it was a national gallery of art, uh, <laughs> security who did it. Cause it was their site. It wasn't me. And I said, and thirdly, these, they are, this is paparazzi. This is not true press. So, uh, we were at the airport. She was going up to New York for a couple of days where NIFO was going to pick her up. New York field office was going to pick her up. And she, as we're waiting for the, the, the shuttle flight and we're waiting in the lounge here and I'm just shooting the breeze with her, man. She was so personable to us. She was, you know, uh, talk about different things with us, whatever. But I said to her, you know, we're doing our best to keep the press away from you. Yes, I know. And I said, it really must be hard having to live that way. Yeah, it's really hard, she said. I said, is there anything else you would like for us to do or you think that we could do to keep them away from you? She said, shoot them. <laughs> I said, well, you know what? I would love to be able to do that. But uh, a long time ago, when we broke away from you lot, I told her. <laughs> We have we we have this thing we call the Bill of Rights. It says that we have freedom of press. So unfortunately, I can't shoot them for you. And she thought that was hilarious. She laughed her ass off. So anyhow, that's my that's my Diana story. Well, that's good. And uh, you know, it's a it's a well, that's a big deal because she's not long, no longer with us. So we don't you know none of us young guys yeah. have the opportunity to do that anymore. Yeah, I mean nobody, nobody else is going to have that opportunity. And you know, when her uh, the I protected Charles, or was on a dignitary protection detail for Charles a few, but maybe a few months later. And I'm sorry, yeah, a few months later, a few months later, uh, I really wanted to protect her son so I could show them my, the picture I have with her that appeared in the the I think it's the Daily Sun or something like that. That's uh, that picture is on my. Uh, my Instagram site. How was Charles? Uh, he was, you know, standoffish because that's the way he was raised, right? He, he's raised to be a king. You know, he's raised to be royal, and that's, the, and that's the way they were raised. But he took pictures with the agents. He took pictures with the police. So, you know, he, he, he knows how to be a nice person as well. But, but it was a huge detail, mind you. This is like, you know, the future king of England. We don't want anything to happen to him in the United States. So we had, a, I mean, a full detail and the detail that we had on Diana because she was cutting back on her, uh, her public duties was, uh, 
was a much smaller detail. So it, we were able to hang out a little bit more with her. And uh, there was a time when they sent me ahead as a site advance to, to, I think, some mall. I forget where she was going. And didn't even tell me that I was the, the bait. The paparazzi followed me to the mall. Meanwhile, they loaded her up into a uh, indiscreet car and uh, and took her to to a loaded up into a discreet car, I should say, and took her to another mall where she was able to shop without being harassed by the press. <laughs> so the guys that got to ride with her in between, they uh, with, with her between them uh, in the back seat of the car, they were much impressed with being able to. Uh, to to please the princess by you know being able to provide that service to her so to speak so so to speak. Yeah, so good. you asked me. I, uh, yeah, I was just ahead. wondering about Charles because and I, I asked because I, I protected his brother Andrew. Oh uh, really? Lucky you. Yeah. Yeah. And how uh, was he? <laughs> he? Kind of an ass. Uh, he, he wasn't an ass to me, but in every meeting he'd go to, you know, he'd do his thing and be polite and then he'd get in the car and he'd just bash every person he talked to all of them I went to LinkedIn we went to Facebook he didn't meet with Zuckerberg uh, but but we were there uh, on the Facebook campus meeting with some, with, with some of their executives got in the car bashed them LinkedIn bashed them we met the uh, Sir Johnny Ives he's the uh, like the designer of the iPhone uh, really one of the top guys at Apple and we got to see the uh, Apple car he didn't bash him that's his buddy he actually went and, uh, went to his house, and, and we got to go, you know, hang out there for a bit. He, uh, you know, he at the end of, of the of the uh, of the detail, he gave me a, a he gave me a gift, and he, you know, when he's handing me the gift, he says, "You know, Cody, I've been doing, I've been part of protection details for all my life, and this is one of the best ones ever." And I wanted to really? say, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> no, he's really, really, he said it, but nobody believes that shit. I mean, we had we made mistakes. So we do it. This is in San Francisco, and I was a San Diego agent. I was the AIC. And uh, and uh, and then so I walked out. Well, the gift he gave me was a picture of himself, a signed picture of himself. Oh, uh, nice. And it, yeah, and it wasn't even it wasn't even signed. It was it was like the print on of his signature. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Come on, man. And, but what I did really enjoy was his. Uh, he had his. He had two uh, of his British uh, royal police. Or I forget what their what their. Uh, what their I, guys th- are, I think but, they're Scotland Yard. I think they're Scotland uh, Yard that's detectives. Right. Uh, that sounds right. Good, great guys. Really enjoyed them, and they and they got it. They got that he was kind of extravagant and full of himself. Um, you know, and and. Uh, he asked me once. He says, uh, "He says while we're while we're driving, he says, Cody, is that the is that the Golden Gate Bridge up there?'" And I said, "Yeah, I, I think so, sir." Which was full of shit. I didn't know what the fuck it was. Uh-huh. And then the, the other guy says, "No, that's this bridge." My my driver. And he said, "You know, Cody, how'd you get that wrong?" And I said, "I don't know, sir. I'm from San Diego." You know, and he says, uh, "He says, well, how do you, how are we getting around here?" Well, sir, we're just following that bus in front of us. And he thought that was hilarious because there was just a bus going around. So he was personal in that regard. He just was, uh, you know, he, he basically bashed everyone he talked to behind their back. So, you know, I suspect, uh, you know, the, the few mistakes we had, which are inevitable, right, on a detail, something's going to happen. Uh, uh-huh. He may have had some commentary, but 
Yeah, East Barbie anyway. spent the entire flight back to England talking specifically about you and, and yeah. how screwed up you were. <laughs> Basically about that, that that country boy from Louisiana can't understand what he's saying, you know. Yeah, but so uh, but speaking of uh, uh, of of British police, one of my favorite trips, and I think you started to ask me about this. One of my favorite trips when I was on SD, and I hadn't been on SD but just a couple months, and they assigned me to do. Uh, residence advance, hotel advance uh, during the, I think it was the 50th celebration of D-Day. So I spent two or three weeks in Portsmouth, England uh, in the uh, Hampshire Constabulary uh, in the county of Hampshire. And and so they assigned a British uh, constable detective to us. Now his name has since escaped me. Uh, but uh, I mean, this guy was fantastic. He took us everywhere. He was a great uh, liaison. Uh, I mean, he, you know, we when we weren't working, we would at five or six o'clock in the afternoon. He would always want to go tip a pint, which was perfectly fine with me. I was happy to go tip a pint with my constable detective, uh, constable uh, sergeant, and um, he took us to the. He took us to his favorite pub in the New Forest. So I asked him, the New Forest? <laughs> How old is the New Forest? He says, about 800 years old. I said, hell, <laughs> was the old forest petrified or something if the New Forest is 800 years old? And uh, and it's the New Forest. And uh, so one night we were having dinner with uh, some of our British buddies that we had picked up along the way and somebody asked us if there were castles in the in United States and so the agent who was the uh, who was a site advance agent uh, oh no or the lead advance agent said sure there are castles in the United States in Disney World <laughs> mm-hmm. so my story about the British police officer is though uh, after about spent about two weeks with him and we got to, you know, went up and got along famously. Uh, so I asked him if there was a possibility if I could buy a, a Bobby's helmet. He said, I don't think we you, we sell those Bobby's, helmet, Bobby's helmets. I don't think we can. I think they're issued items. Uh, he said, but I'll check with the, with, the, with the chief constable. So the day before Christopher arrived, uh, our liaison officer brought two boxes to me small box in which there was a blue light that was, that was the light that we were going to have to attach to the limo. Uh, and a big box. And in that big box was a Bobby's helmet from the Hampshire constabulary with a note. This helmet is a gift for special agent, Michael Pergen, blah, 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 from chief constable, thus. And so Hampshire constabulary. So I, he got me a helmet. Uh, and of course, as a, uh, former police officer in the United States, that was a big score. Yeah. And it's, it's sitting in my office right now. It's one of my, my favorite uh, souvenirs from all my trips uh, that I was on diplomat security is my Bobby's helmet from Hampshire Constabulary. Yeah, that's awesome. Those guys are solid. Yeah. Oh, they are, oh, man. Yes. And they, you know, and they do the job without guns. Can you imagine doing that, that job without guns in the United States? No way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Guatemala City, 96 to 98, you were an ARSO there? 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. My first ARSO tour. How'd that go? What are, what are your threats in Guatemala? Um, it was a critical threat for crime, and there was a lot of uh, violent crime. Uh, we had probably uh, diplomatic residences. Uh, we probably had seven or eight burglaries of diplomatic residences. Uh, there was one uh, burglary where the the diplomats were gone, uh, and somebody uh, basically it was a home invasion, not burglary, but they did a home invasion. They tied up the the maid and I think the gardener and just, you know, just basically cleaned out the house. Uh, we had several um, uh, embassy employees, Americans, as well as uh, local staff, but they were carjacked. Uh, we had the uh, head communications officer. I forget what they were called at the time. Anyhow, uh, he was make, making uh, pouch runs to the airport on a couple of different occasions when he was caught in the middle of bank robberies, whether bank robbers were – he was out on the street. The rob, the, they were robbing a bank, but – got caught in, in the middle of a shootout between the police and the security as well as, uh, and, and the robbers. So, you know, basically he's, you know, trying to dig a hole in asphalt to get as, as low as he can. He, he was, you know, caught with bullets whizzing in front and through the car that he was in. So nobody was killed, thank God, but it was, it came close twice. That guy was in the wrong place at the wrong time. We all had another time where, our roving patrol, which in Guatemala was actually uh, Guatemalan National Police, they had been doing patrol services for the U.S. Embassy for years. It started when a U.S. ambassador was kidnapped and I believe killed in Guatemala years ago. So they started assigning a detail to the U.S. ambassador, which was still ongoing, and they did our roving patrol for us. They were on the graveyard shift. They stopped into you know a little mom-and-pop um store and they were carjacked. I mean, they got into a shootout with the bad guys who stole the car that belonged to the U S embassy, the patrol car in which there was a shotgun and body armor and all, you know, all, you know, all the other stuff that a patrol car car carries. (laughs) So, uh, it was a, it was a pretty violent, violent place. I mean, again, again, a lot of, uh, a lot of crime. Critical threat for crime. So you guys, it sounds like you didn't live on a compound. Uh, did you live in an uh, in a gated community, for example, or did you just live smack down in the city, middle of the city? I happen to live in a gated community, and I think a, a, a lot of the people uh, did live in gated community. That was like one of the Guatemala was and is one of the only places that's a uh, what they call it a. Any, I can't forget what they call it, but you have to bring your own furniture. Mm, okay. And you, have, and you have to find your own house. So basically, whereas a lot of embassies before you get to, uh, before you arrive, uh, they assign a house uh, out of the housing pool to you. In Guatemala, they uh, give you a, a living quarters allowance. That's what we call it, LQA. Living quarters allowance. They give you X amount of dollars based on your rank and your family size. And for this amount of money, you go out and find your own residence, whether it's a house or, or an apartment or whatever. A lot of people lived in apartments, and there were some fantastic apartments. Uh, 
but uh, we lived in probably one of the be- best houses we've had that, you know, my wife went out and while I was at work, she went with the realtor who knew what we were allowed. And she showed, showed us several houses and ended up being in a nice gated neighborhood. It was pretty secure. Uh, we had a, uh, overlooked uh, one of the most active volcanoes in, in uh, the country of Guatemala that um, erupted a number of times while we were there. Uh, experienced our first first earthquakes while we were there. <laughs> yeah, so it was a the country is a beautiful country. Uh, it was just you know just um, eaten up with crime. Yeah, which but is our, which is interesting that they uh, that they just allow you to come there and pick your own house. I mean, did, did the arsenal office have to approve? You oh to, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, you said the. The, we had the residential security coordinator who would go, uh, you know, would do the survey of the house and say to the landlord, okay, this is what we see. Actually, I say what we didn't have a residential security coordinator. The ARSOs were in charge of the uh, residential security program. So we were basically, we would go do a survey of the house and we would say, okay, you need to put bars here and you need to do that there. And so, and, and, uh, you know, the, the employee would have to negotiate with the landlord to do those installations. If there were any uh, upgrades that they needed to do to the house, they'd have to do it within the allowance that, uh, that the embassy gave the employee. But yeah, you still had to, uh, you had to have approval uh, for the security from the, uh, from the, from the RSOs, from the security office. And you also had to have the GSO or the housing uh, board, would also have to say no, you can't have that house cause it's too big for your, for your family size or for your rank or whatever. So basically you had to get a pr- two approvals, housing board and the uh, RSO security uh, manager. So, so yeah. And, and we only allowed people to live in, I think three sections of, of town at that time. They had to be close enough to the embassy where the roving patrol could get to them pretty quickly and of course, it couldn't be in certain areas of the city that were, uh, you know, had a lot more crime than the than the, the residential areas in which we lived. So it was, I mean, it was a, you know, typical embassy uh, security program, even housing security. And the only difference was is rather than the embassy finding the house and assigning it to you, they assigned you X amount of dollars, and then you went out and found your house. So, and and actually, because we found our own house, and because my wife got what she wanted, it was probably the uh, we were more satisfied with that house than any other houses that we lived in for the rest of our my career overseas. And that was my see, I spent five tours overseas, so that was our best house of all the the uh, the embassies in which I worked. All the others were uh, were assigned to you. Were assigned to us, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes they were, uh, we had a, in Zambia, we had a nice house, but it just, it didn't flow. The feng shui was horrible. <laughs> we had a pool. We had our, uh, our secondary uh, source of water, but, uh, which happened to be a big pool. But, uh, you know, as far as the actual house, it's, it just, I was all chopped up and uh, it was, it was just, it was not a great house. So you did two years in Guatemala, typical uh, RSO tour, and then uh, MSD. 
MSD, yeah. Mm-hmm. And MSD at the time, I mean, MSD was a lot smaller then than it is now. I think we had six units at the time, and there were four people uh, assigned to a unit. Uh, you know, we had some the headquarters guys, the uh, office guys, I guess you could say, that didn't travel as much as the rest of us. Uh, the uh, but, and I think, and, oh, and also I went on MSD uh, right after the, excuse me, right after the embassies were bombed in in Africa, in uh, Dar es Salaam in uh, it's Nairobi, right? Yeah, so. We, uh, the accountability review board, one of the recommendations the ARB made was that uh, the State Department needed to train people better and how to keep themselves safe overseas. So me and the rest of those teams, since we were not only uh, high-speed operators, but we were also instructors, we went around the world, and I think in the, in those uh, three years I was on MSD, we probably hit uh, from, you know, among all the, the teens, we probably hit every embassy and consulate in, in the world providing personal protective measures, training, uh, counter surveillance, in some cases, uh, depending on uh, the location. Uh, I was the, uh, the rape awareness coordinator, so I would give rape awareness classes to uh, women's groups. Uh, in some of the, the posts uh, that I visited. And that's probably the only time the MSD has ever uh, visited Paris other than <laughs> doing some kind of uh, protection on a, on a dignitary, if, on the Secretary of State. If I don't even know if uh, the Parisian the police or the uh, the French police allow MSD to operate in, in, in France. But I actually went to Paris for a week doing uh, as an instructor. Paris, Strasbourg. Luxembourg, Marseille, and I think we hit one other post. So uh, that was my second to last trip on MSD. We hit all those European posts. And the rest of the time, it was either Far East or Africa. And when we weren't doing um, we weren't doing the overseas instructor stuff, we were doing the counter-assault stuff on, uh, uh, on dignitaries in the United States, including Madeleine Albright, who was the secretary at the time. And uh, and then, of course, being sent overseas to do the security augmentation for embassies that were under higher threat. Mm-hmm. So it was a I mean, I, I, I think of those three years that I was on MSD, I was probably gone eight months out of a, a year total. Not all at one time, of course, but but hardly ever home. One night, yeah. You, Go ahead. You know, I had, I had my last guest was John. Uh, he was MSD, and he was saying uh, one of his years he spent eleven months on the road, just uh, wow, just saying feast or famine, you know. And I'm sure, uh, you know, because I w- went on MSD right after the African bombings, and I went overseas uh, three weeks before uh, the the September 11 attacks in in New York, so. Uh, I'm sure after that, MSD probably got a whole lot busier, and I know they got a whole lot bigger. Now they're mobile security deployments instead of a, a division like MSD was when I when I was on the on the job. And 
Now, regular agents, now I say regular agents, and you know what I mean by that. I don't mean to run down any uh, DS agent at all, but uh, agents coming on the job now going to high threat protection or, I mean, high threat, the high threat course or um, what do they call it now? Atlas. Is it Atlas? Atlas, now? yeah, going, going yeah. to Atlas. Agents going to Atlas are getting training that only MSD agents got when I went through. So I can't imagine what other high-speed training must be fantastic that MSD agents are getting now. I mean, you know, again, at the time, we were the only ones doing those doing those kind of operations, those kind of missions. Um, you know, and so it was, uh, it was indeed it's probably the, some of the best training I ever got. You know, we went down to uh, – we, my, my group green team, my training team went through, had, uh, was one of the first green teams that went to, uh, we called it Sear light, you know, where we got taken hostage for a few days. Uh, and we were the first agents in MSD who had done that for like maybe three, four years. Um, so, you know, we went to a military installation and we underwent, uh, <laughs> We didn't get to ta- do the search and evasion, but we had to do the resistance part of the of the course uh, of the training. Kept us in a in a cold uh, four by four box for two days. <laughs> oh, it, I imagine MSD still doing that, right? I mean, High Threat. Uh, well, it's called Atlas now, but High Threat was doing our own version. They hired a you know contract company to come in and do the uh, the kidnapping portion, and it's a day, and they don't put you in a box. It's set up uh you know in a, in a way that I, I thought it was pretty realistic for you know today's uh threats that we face um but i, I suspect yeah, I, that, I, that they're doing it now as well right msc i understand that they're doing it they're doing it in a different location uh, hmm. uh where i did it and again there's some of the some of the uh the facilities where we take the training, uh, I don't want to say, but uh, I would, because of the, well, I don't know if it's classified, of course. I wouldn't say anything classified. Yeah, that's fine. OPSEC. Uh, All good. You know how it is. OPSEC, yeah. You know, we don't want to say where it is, but, uh, yeah, I, they're doing it in a different location, but they are doing it from last I heard. And it's, it's important. It's important because, you know, sometimes you're out there. Just the four of you, and I was in two or three war zones, just the four of us, and, you know, one of the guys on my, my team uh, had been a, an Apache attack uh, helicopter pilot, uh, or he was in uh, the Army Reserve at the time, and I said, thank God you're with us because, you, you know, we might have to fly a helicopter out of here to, <laughs> to get out of this country, you know. So, so yeah, I, and it really is a – makes you realize you do not want to be taken hostage. I guarantee you. Like every, every MSD agent that I talked to before I got on MSD and every MSD agent afterwards who's gone to that course said, all I learned from that course is I'm going to die before I'm taken hostage. <laughs> yeah. And that's, well, you know, value in that is. for sure. It's value in that. It's value in knowing what you might face, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and it prepares hey, you. I mean, again, just training, preparation, get, get, you know, get ready for it. Michael, what three war zones were you in? Uh, let's see. I was, these were like uh, ongoing civil wars, I put it that way. I went to, uh, I think Escopia, Macedonia was one place where there was a, 
where the um, where rebels, I guess you could say, were fighting the local government. Mm-hmm. I went to Tashkent. Uh, I don't. That wasn't so much a war zone as the. It was a. There was a a threat on the ambassador's life, and then one other which now has escaped me because. Mind you, I was in so many different places on MSD. And what I really rue, uh, my my one regret about about diplomatic security in general, not just MSD, is I didn't keep a journal of all of all those things. So a lot of times I have to try to reconstruct my trips uh, in my mind. But I do remember specifically those those two, and in Skopje, the the rebels were shelling the the airport, so we couldn't get out. We were stuck in Skopje for a little bit longer than we expected. We were going to be stuck in Skopje. So one night, one evening, we go up on top of a mountain, really far away from the from the airport, and we're watching the rebels shell the <laughs> shell the the airport. And I had the nerve to call my wife and tell her that I was watching I was watching a firefight between the government and the and the rebels. Well. Of course, I scared the crap out of her because she didn't realize how far away I really was. But <laughs> yeah, and there's a wow. I can't remember if it, if it was there, but in another place where we were pr- protecting the ambassador, I was about to step out onto the balcony of a wherever he was meeting the uh, host government officials, and one of the police officers came and stopped me and said, "You can't go out there." So why not? I said, I want to just, you know, check out the back of the house. He said, because there's snipers over that valley over there and they, and, and they'll shoot at you from here. So, okay, I think I'll stay inside. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a, that was another war zone, but I can't remember again where that was. Uh, you know, you Crazy mentioned Tashkent, uh, which is Uzbekistan. And uh, I know next door in Dushanbe, Tajikistan, uh, had, they had a, uh, they had, they, they had civil war, I think up, up up until 2007, if I if I remember correctly, or it might have been 97 actually. But even after 97, I, I know this because I studied that in college as my area of focus: Russia and, and uh, Central Asia. And mm-hmm. uh, that whole area was was had had issues, and, and then their neighbors are off. I mean, their neighbors are Iran and Afghanistan, so you know there's yeah. threats all around that area. Yeah, I mean, just just being there was a you know uh, was a threat basically, and from uh, with the ambassador, with a, he had a threat on him, and we had a you know basically a full uh, well, we had a full detail on him technically, although we were having to do it pretty much uh, under the radar. Uh, you know, there's four of us in a follow car and follow him all around town, and you know, ready to take on the bad guys if they if they uh, if they attacked him. So part of it right well those are some good uh good anecdotal stories for for msd because a, a lot of the people that ping me on you know instagram or on uh wherever uh you know youtube or whatever they, they ask about msd and i was the same way i was it was you know i was a marine so i was excited i wanted to try out msd and then i i kind of got my fill when i went to high threat and i did that yeah. i did you know did a rack and i said well this is fun and i wanted to stay overseas then i got the overseas bug and uh, well, kind of just went from there, you know. Well, I did four tours straight overseas, and was going on my fifth tour uh, when I got caught a dose of cancer, 
And uh, so DS, uh, see, I was going to, I would, I, uh, from El Salvador, I had been assigned as the RSO in Guatemala and was really looking forward to going back to Guatemala because first time we were there, we were with our daughters who were 13 and 9 at the time. And, you know, so we were looking forward to going back and going places that we weren't able to go to, you know, for worrying about taking our daughters, et cetera, et cetera. We'd even gone uh, uh, in the spring of 2010. We went to uh, – sorry, the spring of 2014, we went to look at an apartment in Guatemala and we were going to, uh, you know, we'd already, we already knew the apartment that we wanted to try to, to rent or the apartment house uh, buildings that we wanted to try to get our house in. And so I'd had a series of blood tests that showed something was going on in my blood and it turned out to be lymphoma. They actually uh, medevac me out of El Salvador to Miami uh, where I had a bone marrow biopsy that determined it was lymphoma. So, uh, you know, uh, I asked DS to see if they could assign me to a Houston field office so I could be treated MD Anderson. And that's how I ended up in Houston rather than being the RSO in Guatemala. And DS really took care of me. You know, I'm putting a plug here for Mark Danzig and the peer support group because, you know, Mark called me to find out. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's a great guy, and that's a good group too. I mean, you know, I was I was part of the peer support group as well before I retired. Uh, and Mark called me, said, "What can I do to help you?" And Mark was on the on the class just before mine. Uh, uh, he was class thirty nine, and I was class forty, BSAC forty, and so we've known each other for years. Uh, anyhow, I said, "Mark, I don't know if you can, you know, what you can do to help me get to Houston, but you know, I'll work in." You know the passport office. I'll work in whatever if you can get me get me to Houston. So they, you know, they took care of me, and that's one thing I really like about DS. You know, as we say, DS eats eats their young, and I guess in some cases they do. But when it comes to, uh, you know, when it comes to taking care of their people, they did. They they double encumbered a, a unit supervisor job. Uh, and then when that unit supervisor left, I, I'm, you know, I, then I became the unit supervisor full time. And then when I discovered that the, the SAC was going to retire, he and I both started working on DS to try to bump me up to SAC and they, and they, and they did. So, you know, they took care of me, but, uh, and now I'm, I won't say I'm cured of lymphoma, but I certainly got it in a box somewhere. So, you know, I'm really healthy now. And so, you know, that's how I ended up in Houston. And I can't say uh, enough good things about, you know, Mark helping me get there. And um, heck, I'm going to think of their names here in a minute. Uh, uh, Bill Miller was the director of DS at the time, and he was really good at helping me get here. So, you know, it, it, it worked out for me. Yeah. You know, I had two times in, in DS that, that, well, one, I think the peer support group started later. It's the first time I, I heard them. But when I went, when I had went through training, my my uh, I got assigned to New York, and my dad had just had a quadruple bypass, and uh, you know I wanted to be near him. Uh, I'd been gone for I don't know fifteen years, you know, with the military, and um, and so uh, I heard that a, a girl dropped from Houston, and I just I just I wasn't I wasn't hard pressed. I just wrote. I said, hey. Uh, it's my situation and it'd be cool if I could be near my dad. He's in Louisiana. And within three weeks, the guy was responsive. And then within three weeks, he said, we got you that spot in Houston. 
And uh, that was Good. my first experience with them. They, and they took care of me. And my experience with Mark was uh, in Vietnam um, when, uh, well, one of the, I was the acting RSO. I'd been acting RSO for several months. And, and the uh, we had a workplace uh, accident in which the, the guy's uh, halon canister got loose and flew through the air and took a guy's head off, took one of our staff's head off. And so I responded to that. Uh, and, uh, and actually it's the story in the book and, and handled that whole situation. And Mark, it had to be, it might've been the same night uh, or it could have been the next day, but Mark called me and just asked how I was doing, you know, just a chat. And, you know, I was a tough guy. I didn't really want to talk, but inside it's like, you know, it was good to get some stuff off my chest and he must have followed up with me for two weeks, two or three weeks until I was finally, hey, Mark, I'm all good, man. You know, we're good. But that was my first experience with the peer support group. And I've heard of a lot of agents having uh, great experiences with him. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad, I guess I'm glad we can give him a shout out because I know some DS agents are listening to this. So I, I hope good. so. I hope because yeah. I think he's done, he did a – he does a solid for DS. He didn't just do a solid for me, but he does it for, yeah. for DS too. And he's, you know, he went through some horrible traumatic experiences, uh, after his car accident. Um, and he knows from whence he speaks, you know? Um, yeah. And I, and I, and I hope other DS agents who listen to the podcast, if they're not part of the peer support group, I, definitely recommend that they look into taking and training and becoming part of it because it's, it's important. There's, there's too many things that we, that we experience, uh, that are traumatic, uh, that can affect our lives, uh, and our families, the lives of our families, if we don't get it off our chest, so to speak. So, yeah, yeah. no, I would, I would agree. And that goes for aspiring agents too. Cause I know there, there are a lot of people that, that I communicate with or aspiring DS agents. And, uh, I think that's a good tip, you know, to get involved. And that, you know, that's, um, uh, because aspiring agents contact you a lot. And I hope that some of them are listening to uh, your podcast as well. What I say about the diplomatic security is it's a, it's a fantastic job that allows you to go places and do things that, no other federal agent, much less law enforcement agent, has the opportunity to do. And if you're the kind of person who wants to, you know, do investigations, do criminal investigations, uh, there's a chance that you can get into some really, really good criminal investigation. I mean, you know, HFO's got some, it does some really good criminal work. But if you're the kind of person uh, like me, you get bitten by the, the overseas bug, uh, there's a possibility that you can stay out uh, overseas. Probably not as easy now as it used to be, but you may not be able to do as many back-to-back overseas tours as I did. But you, certainly there's a possibility where you can do several overseas tours in a 25, 30-year career with DS. So, you know, it's it's just, uh, you know, I... I I can't imagine doing anything differently uh, for me and my wife, both being born. Uh, well, she was born in another town in Louisiana, but she was reared in, in West Monroe. For us, it was like stepping off a cliff for me to go from being a police officer in, in West Monroe, Louisiana to, to being a diplomatic security agent. But I was able, I adapted pretty quickly uh, and I can't imagine doing anything else. And it's just a, 
fantastic job. Now, you know, I've had a couple of people who younger agents who were, um, who were in my unit or who were in the field office who have gone to other agencies because they wanted to, you know, do something different. I wish they had done the, an overseas tour before they left. Cause I think it's important that people get that uh, experience with, with the state department with diplomatic security before you decide that you want to do something else, because that's the, as they used to, as they told us when I came on the job, that's where you make your bones with DS and doing your overseas tours. So, you know, that's important, but yeah, I had a had a great time in my overseas tours. I, I can't say I had a single one that was not a good tour. Yeah, speaking they, of they're that, all different. Go ahead. Yeah, how about Lusaka? Tell me a little oh, bit, man. Lusaka, our favorite post. Apart from the fact that the house wasn't a great house, but the the Lusaka is sub-Saharan Southern Africa, the best weather in the world. Uh, their their winter time is like is right now these months right now because they're below the equator daytime temperatures might be 70 to 75 degrees nighttime temperatures 40 to 45 clear blue skies for three four months in a row uh just a you know clean clean uh, air uh good work there uh really good tight relationship with the with the peace corps uh security officer Good community, uh, good expat community. Had a fantastic relationship with the with the Brits, with the Canadians, with the Australians. Um, I, I started running in the Hash House Harriers in uh, <laughs> in Lusaka, and we were, you know, you, have you ever done the Hash? No, I heard of them. Why don't you explain a little bit of what? Uh, what, what okay, what, so what the Hash House Harriers is a group that started uh, was started in uh, Malaysia or Malaya, as it was called at the time, by a bunch of uh, either retired or former uh, British military officers. And long story short, they would go out and get drunk, and the next uh, on a Saturday night, on a Sunday morning, they would go out and run off their hangover, and then they would go to this hash house and have have breakfast. So somehow, this has become a uh, a group that styles itself as a, let's say a, a drinking group with a running problem. So <laughs> right. uh, long story short, we would run on a Saturday afternoon, I believe is when they did it in, in Lusaka. We would run through the African bush for about two hours. And then after those two hours, we would gather up in a big circle and we would drink beer and bust on each other and make fun of stupid things that we did during the run, <laughs> during the hash. Yeah, they, and, uh, so there, there was a hash house here in Moscow when I was at MSG, and I never did it, but I, those guys were – I think they would drink during the race. I think they have stations set up and, and or stop at a bar and have a drink and just keep running. Is that – did you guys do that? Do or is that yeah. They do it differently. They would um, Each hash does theirs differently. I really enjoyed the Lusaka hash because, again, it was my first one, and uh, but also – because of the the places that we ran again through the really nice African bush and everything, but there there's always some faster runners. So they try to send the fact they set a bunch of fake trails. So by the time the fast runners have gone down the fake trail and come back, the slow runners have caught up with them. And at different places around uh, on on the run, sometimes they would stash water, and other times they would stash beer. So you would have a dry hold where there's no nothing to drink, where you're just stopping, waiting for everybody to catch up before you take off again. And you would have a, a water hold, and then you would have a beer hold. 
So every once in a while, we would stash beer out along the, along the trail so that when you would get to that beer hole, then we would you would you know drink a a bottle of beer and and, and take off. Uh, but but that sounds uh, like a good time. It was a good time, man. And, and again, it was a good way to meet. It was a good way to get outside of the embassy community because you know you know how it is. You can you see those people uh, eight hours a day. Uh, five days a week or sometimes more than that. But, and so as a way to get to meet people outside the embassy, uh, meet locals, uh, you know, the, there was a, uh, a club in Lusaka called the order of the 10 hat, which was a bunch of retired British military personnel who, uh, ran the hash with me. And after a while, they just they just started inviting me to their uh, meetings or their uh, it was a it was a club just like you know kind of like a, a a British club that you see uh, on TV or, or movies about colonial era uh, England where the uh, old British guys would get together and pip pip tally ho and that kind of, you know have a few drinks and have a they had a restaurant there so they actually. Invited me to uh, the Order of the Ten Hat on a on a number of occasions. So Lusaka was my was actually my favorite my favorite tour of all of all of them, just because of the embassy community. We were there though. I got there three weeks before uh, the attacks in New York in two thousand and one, uh, and it was a really hard grind for the first six months I was there because of the everything that, you know, the, all the heightened security that went up around the world, around embassies around the world. We had that anthrax attack in the mail room and embassy in the, uh, not in the embassy, but the mail room back in main state where a couple of people died from uh, anthrax. And so they closed down our mail room. We had pouch mail. We didn't have a DPO, uh, in Zambia. So we had to close down the, the, the mail room for like six months until I could get a company from South Africa. I convinced the GSO to let me hire a company from South Africa to come up and decon our mail room. Uh, so, you know, we didn't get mail for, a, for six months. My ARSO's wife had ordered a, a gown for the, um, for the Marine ball and she didn't get it until they got to their next tour, which uh, was Cambodia, I believe. So uh, she got it two years later. That's how long it was delayed in the mailroom back in Washington. But uh, a funny story about the day of the, the 911 attacks, though. Uh, of course, we were scrambling like ants whose anthill had been turned over, had been kicked over, trying to get the Zambia police to assign more uh, officers there. And, you know, we, none of us knew if it could, could have been the beginning of a uh, coordinated attacks against embassies around the world. So, um, I'm off on a country team meeting at the ambassador's residence, or maybe it was at the DCM's residence. Cause we decided to take the country team meeting off a of compound just in case we got attacked. So my ARSO calls me and said, Mike, you're not going to believe it. And I said, what happened? He said, the Zambia police showed up on a flatbed truck, and there's probably like 40 police officers on that flatbed truck. I said, well, what's so hard to believe about that? He said, half of them have RPGs. 
<laughs> they were ready to shoot down the plane that was going to attack the the U.S. embassy. <laughs> That's they awesome. So, off of that. <laughs> so it sounds like uh, so your, your relationship with them with the. Uh, well, the Zambia National Police. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the Zambia National Police. We had a great relationship with them. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. We did. So I mean, we uh, the the International Law Enforcement Academy uh, in Botswana opened up while I was there. So we sponsored several of them to go to the uh, Hialeah in Botswana, and so of course they got a free trip to Botswana. But then what 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 really got them in my pocket, I guess you could, so to speak, is we sent them to a- advanced training at the ILEA in Roswell, New Mexico. So they got to do, get a, a trip to United States. So that was a, that was a good deal. That's, that's a, the ILEAs are a fantastic deal for RSOs who don't have as much money to spend as the FBI and some of those other alphabet agencies to, uh, to send police officers to training. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. Anytime you can send uh, some of your counterparts to well, one the U.S. because they all want to come to the U.S. to visit uh, and get a free trip out of it. You know, you, you're gonna you're gonna build that personal professional capital with them. Quick, absolutely. You know, That's right. I mean, it's like which is you know, they get invaluable. You know. Yeah, it's it's this it's the personal touch. That's how you get things done. You know as well as I do. You know, you can say I'm from the U.S. Embassy all you want and, and hope that they will, you know, give you that gives you a little bit of cachet with the local police. But if you can bring them a bottle of scotch at Christmas, even if it's out of your own pocket, if you can get them to uh, the United States on, for some kind of training or even into the neighboring a neighboring country to get, you know, the, then that really uh, that really builds that that one-on-one, that personal relationship relationship where, you know, you can pick up the phone and call the national, the inspector general of the Zambian national police and say, I need you to do this for me because I'm a, you know, I'm in dire straits here. I need your help, so to speak. So. So speaking of ILEA, that was your next post, right? Uh, Next assignment in Lima. So uh, in Lima, I was a deputy RSO. Where was I? Oh, you were Alia in San Salvador. All right, so let's let's go. Yeah. Let's let's do Deputy RSO first in Lima. Okay. Well, um, what I'll say about I loved Lima. I loved Peru. It was uh, there was a lot of crime there. It's a major metropolitan city with something like seven to ten million people jammed into a small space. So traffic it was horrible. But it was also a brand new Inman building, as we called them then, you know, built uh, to the, the standards that the Inman uh, Accountability Review Board promulgated standards for embassy construction. Brand new facility, uh, you know, uh, top notch, uh, top notch uh, infrastructure at the at the embassy anyhow it's hard getting there because the roads are so jam packed with traffic though uh, but you know I went to uh, Machu Picchu probably four times while I was in Peru one time with a with a dignitary um, I think a Codel came yeah so I went with a Codel one time uh, and then um, they have high mountain deserts they have jungle we the the DEA and the narcotics affairs section 
had uh, forward operating locations out in the jungles. And, uh, of course, we were in charge of security, so we went up country on a number of occasions that flew either in helicopters or, or planes to the to the forward operating bases uh, of the DEA and, and checked out their security and make sure that, you know, that they had all the uh, barbed wire and the, <laughs> and the guards that they needed and the walls and the fences. Uh, but, uh, and, and, of course, uh, Peruvian food is becoming internationally known, Peruvian cuisine, I should say. So of, of all the things I miss about Lima, Peru, it's the food, and they have their own brandy, which they call Pisco. And there's a, a mixed drink called a Pisco Sour, which I love. <laughs> I've heard of that somewhere. Uh, maybe, you know, I have a, a buddy is a DS agent that was in Lima uh, probably 2012. And I feel like he's the one that brought up a Pisco Sour. Oh, man, they're fantastic. Uh, but uh, they're pretty strong. If you have two of them, you better stand up between the first and the second one, because if you have two in a row without standing up, you're not going to stand up after the second one. <laughs> yeah. Now i got to get my hands on one of those drinks. I'll try so make it sure it's done. Make sure it's Peruvian Pisco and it's done the, the Peruvian way. I'll send you the recipe. Because right. uh, you can probably find the uh, Pisco from Peru uh, in San Diego. I'm sure you can. But uh, there's a, another, there's a Pisco that, uh, that's distilled in Chile. And uh, I used to say that the Chileans and the Peruvians who would come to the military officers, who would come to the Marine balls in their uniform, they had all these flashy uh, medals on, of course. And I would say that's, they fought the, the Pisco Battle of uh, 1965 with that medal and the Pisco Battle of 1972 with that one because there's a big rivalry between Chile and Peru as to who actually has the true original version of distilled brandy called Pisco. But to me, the Peruvian kind is the best. So, Yeah, I'll have to check it out. But I'm biased, I, I'm, I'm sure, since I spent yeah. so much time in Peru. And actually, Peru was a, a two-year tour. And after having done three years in in Zambia, I, and you know, stupid me, I didn't notice it was a two year tour when I bid on it. I just thought I was going to be there three years. Uh, mm-hmm. Got there and immediately asked for a third year, and I got it. So they extended me a third year. It was a I don't know why Zambia being a three year tour, why Peru was a a two year, unless it was because I was in the deputy position. But my, and then I my. RSO, who was there when I arrived, he re- he retired early, so I was there for a year as the acting RSO, and uh, I discovered that I'm a megalomaniac man. I never I, it was so hard for me to give up the the reins as the as the RSO when the when the new RSO came in because I'd been almost a year, you know, I was RSO in Zambia, so I was in charge there and had one ARSO, and I go to. Uh, Lima and almost but within my when three months of arriving there I become the acting RSO for almost a year and uh, was accustomed to making all the decisions of course you had to run them by the DCM and the ambassador but you know you don't have to run them by anybody else you're 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 making decisions you're taking a responsibility on yourself so the new ARS uh, the new RSO got there and after about a Two or three weeks at post, he called me in and said, Mike, remember, I'm the RSO now. I said, yep, sorry. <laughs> I'm just accustomed to making the decisions. And, you know, but somebody's got to be in charge. And uh, once he and I 
uh, you know, discussed it. He said, okay, I want you to do this, that, and other, and I'm going to do all the other things. And, and we, we got along great, but it's hard to give up the reins is once yeah. you, once you, once you're the boss, it's hard to give them up. It's a tough decision. I mean, a tough uh, situation after a full year. Um, I, I did it for, I think six months. And, and fortunately the, the RSO that came in was, was, uh, was, was great. Different. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I under, understood that I had been doing a lot of things. It was a lot that went on in my six months, you know, from, you know, a threat to terrorist threat to the July 4th ball and death on the compound. And the Vietnamese were trying to land a helicopter on one of our offsite buildings that didn't have a landing <laughs> pad. <laughs> All this shit Oops. was going on. And, uh, but she was, she was awesome. Cause she just, uh, like she knew she kind of eased into it and listened to me and, and, uh, Oh, we did an international future return that we were planning at that point, but a big one because there's a big case, a big fraud case. And anyway, uh, I felt that as a young agent, uh, you know, uh, after being six months of an RSO, so I imagine of an acting RSO, I imagine it was tough for you there. But it's good you guys worked it out. I mean, that's 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 part of it, you know, because you're you're with these guys in country, guys and girls, you know, sometimes two years, two three years, and relationships matter. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately for me, I never had a bad boss. I mean, I've heard, you know, you've heard horror stories and I've heard horror stories, but I've never had a bad boss, whether it was, a, you know, uh, the DCM at some post or the ambassador to others or the RSO at some post, you know, it's like, you know, we were able to, uh, you know, get along and I, I never had, I, I really, I, I can't say anything bad about anybody, uh, that I worked for in my career. It was, it, you know, sack was okay when I was in uh, Wolfo. There were better sacks, but he wasn't bad. But then, you know, from there, from then on, I had a fantastic sack and SD, and all my bosses overseas were great. So, and that's all and right. that's a big deal, right? It can make you miserable if you're you know that you're going to be working for a, a miserable POS for two or three years. It just no, no matter how fantastic the weather is in a country no matter no matter how fantastic the the work is if you have to work for somebody that you can't get along with it just makes a big it makes all the difference in the world so lucky for me i never had to experience that and i hope that people who work for me aren't who are listening to your podcast aren't saying well you should have learned something (laughs) (laughs) maybe we'll find out We'll see. I did. I did try to, you know, from my first RSO, I I learned a lot from him about what to do, but I also learned a lot about what not to do. And when I went to the Houston field office, frankly, because again, I was wasn't feeling well because of my uh, had to do chemo for the search first six months, uh, one time a week for six months, so I wasn't feeling well. And I hadn't done criminal investigations in a long time. And so I would explain to the agents in my unit, I said, look, uh, I want you to know that there are some things about the criminal program that I don't know. And so we're going to, if I don't know the answer, we're going to find the answer together or we're going to go to the the GS uh, agents who are here full time. We're going to ask them how to do, you know, how to do X, Y and Z. I said, and remember, 
you can learn as much about what to do from uh, from me as you can learn about what not to do. So I said, try to learn both lessons from me, what to do and what not to do. So, and I that's think they appreciated that. That's a valuable leadership lesson. You can, you can learn. Well, you know, I didn't, I didn't try to blow smoke. Yeah. I didn't try to blow smoke up their ass. I, you know, uh, uh, we cannot have all the answers regardless whether it's whether you know it's in the overseas programs or whether it's in a criminal program you you as a unit supervisor as a SAC as a unit supervisor uh or just as a hump agent you there's always a time when you're going to have to ask somebody how do i do this and uh if you try to bluff your way through it that's when you get yourself in problems right yeah definitely Okay, so uh, Colombo, that's in uh, Sri Lanka, yeah? That's in Sri Lanka, and I was there. Uh, my first two years there was the last two years of their, their hot civil war with the Tamil Tigers. And believe you me, it was a hot civil war. I think the there was a, a bombing about every, at least every three months on average, there was a bombing in, in the city of Colombo where a bunch of people were killed. I'd only been there a uh, a month when there was a, a big shopping area. Thank goodness it wasn't in in a shopping center that any U.S. employees normally uh, shopped. But a bomb went off in the in a department store and killed like thirty people. And uh, uh, they were attacking city. I mean, uh, in the city, they were attacking. Uh, government officials on a very frequent basis. We used to tell people, if you're, if you are caught up in a, a motorcade, uh, get out of that motorcade as fast as possible because there's a possibility the tigers are going to attack that motorcade. Uh, and you know how it is in, in a crowded city, crowded city streets with motorcade or motorcades going up and down the street on a frequent basis. You could be out on the street and accidentally be caught up in a motorcade mm-hmm. and not be able to get out of it. Uh, and we, we told them, do your best, you know, turn out, stop, whatever you have to do, but get out of that motorcade. Because if you're caught up in a, in a motorcade of, uh, Sri Lankan, uh, government officials, you might be the accidental, uh, target of an attack. We had a, a, uh, I think she was, a on a fellowship, uh, intern on a fellowship or something, but she was at the embassy going out to the airport and she passed through an intersection and when 30 seconds of her passing through the intersection, a bomb went off in the intersection. She actually saw, she heard the explosion and she turned around and she saw the, the pieces of the cars raining down on, on in the intersection after she went through it. So there was a lot, it was, it was, it was really tough. My ARSO there, uh, uh, he curtailed from post uh, because of health reasons for his daughter. And uh, he and his wife are going to go back into the United States and he was going to stay back. And I said, look, there's too much going on here for for you to be here at post while you're worrying about your daughter's health in this in the United States. Said, you're not going to be able to focus on your family and you're not going to be able to focus on your job because you're worried about both of them. And so I said, I uh, commend you for wanting to stay and not leave me shorthanded. I said, but DS will send me temporary duty agents from the region if I need them. And I said, I want you to focus on your daughter's your daughter's uh, health. So he curtailed from post. 
And I begged one of the two ARSOs who worked for me in, uh, in Lima. Uh, well, I begged both of them. I said, I, I don't want to have to teach a new guy a job, so I don't want somebody who's on his first tour as an ARSO. I said, I would like for one of you two to uh, bid on this job. And one of them did. So fortunately for me, he liked me well enough to come from Lima to, uh, to Colombo. And he already knew his job, so I, I didn't have to worry about teaching a new guy how to do his job yeah. in that environment. And we were actually there the, the last night. The Tamil Tigers had what they called the Air Tigers. They had an Air Force. They had Cessna-type planes. I think they were Czech-made, but they were about the size of a, a Cessna. They had rigged a very fancy uh bomb drops on onto the wings of these uh, of these planes and they had bombed Colombo a couple of times while I was there but one night I was having a sundowner on I was I lived on the in an apartment building on the 11th story that overlooked the Indian Ocean and people loved come over to our house because a I made good martinis and B we had a good view of the uh, of the Indian Ocean so I was having a sundowner at my house and I had about five or six people there and all of a sudden, the lights go off in the city of Colombo. And that when the Air Tigers went route, that was part of their uh, their response. They would turn off the power grid in the city so that the Tigers couldn't uh, navigate by lights, see, so that the pilots couldn't see the city. And, and, and I'm out on a balcony and the lights go off and these uh, uh, spotlights start sweeping the, the sky, right? So it's like, uh, a scene out of the Blitz uh, or um, the the Battle of uh, Britain when the Nazis are bombing London, you know, and the spotlights are going off and they're trying to spotlight the plane and uh, anti-aircraft guns start going off way off to the uh, to the east of us. And as the plane got closer, because the, the, the Tigers were flying in from the east, as the plane got closer, the anti-aircraft on top of buildings got you know, started going off. So the batteries started going off closer and closer. And all of a sudden our whole building started shaking. We had known, we thought there was a, uh, an anti-aircraft battery on top of that building, but because we were never able to get on the roof, it was locked down. We never actually saw it. But that night we knew there was one there because the, the, the whole building started shaking with his, with his anti-aircraft battery going off above our head. So they um, were trying to shoot down the plane uh, the pilot was targeting the Air Force General's uh, headquarters, which is about, as as a crow flies, it was a half mile from our house, and I could see the general's house from my balcony. And uh, so he the, the plane was loaded, was packed with, with explosives, and he was trying to fly the plane into the, into the general's headquarters. He missed. He flew into the backside of what uh, the equivalent of their internal revenue service, and blasted out the whole front of that building. Barely missed his target by you know, probably 500 yards, but but blew up that <laughs> that building when he flew the, the plane into the back of it. And the, the other plane that was on the way out, uh, on the way to the city, they actually shot it down out by the, the international airport north of Colombo. That pilot escaped, but he was injured, and as the... Uh, the military and the police uh, uh, swarmed in on him. He he took his uh, cyanide pill and killed himself. 
because the tigers all carried cyanide pills around their neck to commit suicide if they were captured by the by the authorities. So that was the last hurrah of the Tamil air tigers, and we saw it from the balcony of my of my apartment. <laughs> wow! And if you go if you go on Google right now uh, or go on uh, uh, YouTube, I'm sorry, and you can t- you can type in you know you can do a search for uh, Tamil air tiger attack on Colombo. And you can actually see the video that uh, that was taken by infrared. I think that the government posted it on the on, on YouTube. So it's pretty cool. And these are these are uh, threats that people that are outside of global work, uh, you know, uh, diplomatic security or State Department. That you know, you, you hear about Tamil Tigers and a, and, a, and a Sri Lankan civil war, and you know, I I, I knew it existed. I. I didn't know, I don't know much about it, but if you're not in this line of work and especially for these aspiring agents that are coming on and these stories to me, are, if I was an aspiring agent coming on and I have been right, we both have been, this is the type of stuff that excites me. This is the overseas type of work that I want to get involved in, you know, uh, just because of, I mean, not just because of the history of it, but you know, you, you're really doing work that matters in protecting, you know, our U S personnel. Um, yeah. And, as we, you know, we used to have our security briefing because, as you know, for your audience, uh, when new employees arrive at embassies, we have to give them a security briefing. And it's got to cover terrorism. It's got to cover crime. It's got to cover, uh, you know, intel threats. It's got to cover, you know, pr- protecting classified. You know, uh, you know it's got when I, the first security briefing I gave somebody in Guatemala probably lasted 45 minutes. And the last security briefing I gave somebody, uh, in Colombo, Sri Lanka probably lasted an hour, 45 minutes because of all the stuff that we have to go over with them. Right? So we would tell people in Colombo and we, I said, now, you know, the, the biggest, excuse me, the biggest threat that you, that exists here in Colombo is being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I said, I, I can protect you in your house with the, the bars and alarms from crime and from people breaking in. I can protect you in the embassy from people coming across the walls. I said, but I can't protect you out on the street from a Tamil tiger bombing a, uh, a, a government target. And you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And those are the kind of things that may, that worry, you know, that worry in RSO about trying to protect people overseas is the things that are out, out of your control. Right. Very well said. Yeah. I mean, those are that, you know, again, I was there for a part of history. I was there for the last, I was there during the civil war between the Sri Lankan government and the Tamil Tigers. I actually came within a hair's breadth of going up into the Tamil, uh, controlled area because, uh, a UN uh, special delegate, whatever they called him for Sri Lanka, and a uh, a former ambassador to uh, Colombo, who was who at that time had gone back to the states and was uh, the assistant secretary for um, South Central Asian affairs. He was coming back, and he and the UN delegate were going to go meet with the head of the Tamil Tigers, Prabhakaran, to try to convince him to. Uh, convince him to uh, surrender, right? So what's an RSO going to do? We're going to go up and do the advance, right? So we had already made this big plan about how we were going to get, you know, 
leave somebody back. And in, in I had three, I had two ARSOs by that time. So two of us were going to go up into the Tamil Tiger controlled area with the UN security. And we were going to do the advance for the visiting dignitaries who were going to try to convince Prabhakaran to, to surrender. That <laughs> silly as it, as it sounds, I was anxious to meet Prabhakaran because here's the most dangerous uh, leader of one of the most dangerous terrorist organizations in the world. I knew that I wasn't going to be under threat from him because he wasn't going to do anything to a U.S. citizen. He knew he knew better than that. What I was worried about, though, was that the Sri Lankan government was going to launch one, you know, uh, uh, an artillery barrage on him while we were there. So uh, my regret, my only regret about being in Colombo is that I didn't get to meet Prabhakaran, as silly as that sounds, but I, that would have been history, historical. So, no, I think that would have been really cool. Yeah, I agree. I got to protect, you know, I got to uh, protect uh, Yasser Arafat. I got to protect Diana, uh, you know, two historical figures. And I was uh, on the verge of meeting another historical figure and just didn't get a chance to do it. I'm going to have to look them up. The, the Tamil Tigers, are they, uh, what's the history on them? What, what are, I mean, are they a, a Islamic group or just a separatist group? No, 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 no. They are um, Hindu. So Hindu, the, okay. the, the uh, majority population in Sri Lanka is Buddhist. But during uh, during their uh, cl- the colonial era, uh, when the Brits were in, uh, when um, Ceylon was the name of the island uh, pre uh, independence, so when Ceylon was part of the uh, the British Commonwealth or part of their their empire, the Tamils were actually uh, uh, worked in the civil service, and uh, when they got their they worked in the British civil service when they got their independence, the constitution constitutionally required that you, the, 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 their constitution was only written in, uh, Sinhalese, I think is the name of the, the other language, the Buddhist language, Sinhalese, the laws were written in Sinhalese. Basically when they got their independence, the Tamils became, uh, on the outs and uh, they were treated so poorly by the majority Buddhist that, I mean, that they is a, a civil rights issue. Right. Uh, and so they were so marginalized and not just marginalized, but, but attacked by the Buddhist. And, um, you know, I think the, the thing that, that, the Tamil Tigers that that there was an incident in the, I think the late sixties or early seventies where a bunch of Tamils were were killed all over the country, and you know basically almost like a kind of like a crystal knock thing that happened in Germany, where Tamils were dragged out of their, their houses and murdered, their businesses were uh, were were set aflame, uh, they were chased out of Colombo. Uh, and so as a result of that uh, genocide, the, the Tamil Tigers were formed as a, as a group to try to break away and have their own little part of the country, uh, Tamil controlled to be Tamil Elam, they called it, 
whatever Elon means, but it's going to be uh, a country within a country. Does that make sense? See what yes. I'm saying there? Yeah. So, so that's how they started. And, and Prabhakaran was actually a, a smuggler. He smuggled, uh, you know, all kinds of goods in from India for a number of years. So the Tamil Tigers had their, their air force. They had their, uh, they had a Navy, they had a bunch of attack, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll call them PT boats for lack of a better term, but you know, lack of a, a PT boat. Uh, they had their own police force for a while the, in the area. They, they actually, for a, a long time, they were in charge of at least a fourth, if not a, a third of that country, where they had their own, basically had their own judges, their own police force, their own, you know, their own civil service. They had their own government going within, within Sri Lanka. And uh, they also were, the Tamils also invented the, the suicide vest. And they, they successfully killed two heads of state. They killed the Indian prime minister and they killed uh, a Sri Lankan president. And they're the only terrorist organization that has successfully killed two heads of state with a, with a suicide belt. Suicide bomber, I should say. Wow. And that's how a lot of the bombings took place uh, in uh, the bombing that where those 30, 40 people were killed in the shopping center. That was a suicide bomber. Uh, there was a, he, he was a Tamil, but he was actually in, in parliament. So he was representing the Tamils in, in parliament, but he wasn't representing Tamil tigers per se. He was actually uh, anti-Tamil tiger. And uh, a, um, a female bomber, uh, came into his his office, which is about three blocks from the house I, I lived in when I originally arrived in Colombo. And so she tried to get in without an appointment to see him. And the secretary, the personal secretary of this Tamil member of parliament and the police officer who was in the lobby stopped her from going into the lobby. And she uh, exploded her her uh, suicide vest in the lobby, which is also another video you can find on YouTube. So it's a, it was a, it's a strange time to be in Sri Lanka. And then they wiped out the Tamil tigers. And the last year I was there, it was just as safe as can be. <laughs> hmm. Nothing going on. So, so, yeah. They just like well, change night and day. That's some intense, intense stuff. All right. Well, uh, I want to talk a little about ILEA and just really what it is. Okay. Uh, and then we're running low on time, and uh, not not too low. We'll be we'll be fine. But ILEA is something I haven't been able to talk about because I haven't served there, and I completely forgot about it that it, that it exists. That it's a a position you can bid on. I believe. Well, you tell us. You have to be a two or a one, and and what exactly is ILEA? Okay, ILEA is, is the International Law Enforcement Academy. It's actual, actually uh, a part of uh, shoot, the Bureau of Inter- Narcotics and Law Enforcement, I believe, which is another bureau of the, uh, the U.S. Department of State, separate from, uh, from diplomatic security, the Bureau of Diplomatic Security. Uh, 
And the ILEA principle started under the Clinton administration in the 90s. The first one was opened up in Budapest, Hungary. The director of that one is a, has so far traditionally, I should say, been an FBI agent, and the deputy director has been a DS agent. The second one opened up in Bangkok. There the director has been a DEA agent, and the deputy director has been DS Third one opened up in Habaroni, Botswana. The director there has been uh, an instructor from Fletzi, and the deputy director has been a DS agent. Then they opened up the one in ILEA in San Salvador, El Salvador, and DS asked me if I would bid on that job because they wanted a DS agent. Diplomatic Security wanted a DS agent to be director of an ILEA. So now, uh, and I'm, to me, this is probably the best legacy I've left DS because now the, they just say, okay, what, what DS agent is going to bid on this job? <laughs> and so they pretty much accept the, the DS agent that, um, the DS agent that DS puts forward for the job, but you can bid on a job, but you still have to be approved by the, the ILEA board of directors. But they pretty much uh, go with the, whatever agency has put forth the director. They pretty much say, okay, it's a stamp of approval, right? Mm-hmm. And the deputy okay. director there, when I first got there, was uh, uh, an IRS uh, special agent. And then my second deputy there was a DEA special agent. And that's probably how it's going to say, stay. So they, these international law enforcement academies are just like they sound. They're there to bring... Uh, police, uh, law enforcement, corrections, just the gamut of a criminal justice system, judges, they bring them in for either seminars uh, on, you know, uh, narcotics. They bring them in to uh, human trafficking. If any kind of, um, I guess, crime, international crime you can think of, money laundering, et cetera, et cetera, they bring them in for seminars. But then there's also the... the uh, Law Enforcement Executive Development course, which is a six-week course that they get to uh, they attend for six weeks, and it's just exactly like it sounds. You're trying to develop the law enforcement executive for the future, uh, who's going to be the probably be go up to higher rank and you know climb through the ranks of the of the police services that we invite to participate in the ILEAs. And the one in El Salvador covers Central South America as well as part of the Caribbean. And uh, it's a good way to, you know, to uh, the, the instructors are usually special agents of the agencies that, that's providing the instruction. For example, if it's money laundering, either the IRS or the Secret Service provides a course. If it's protection, uh I made it where the the Secret Service has their course for two weeks, but also DS teaches a separate uh, protection course. And DS also teaches a facilities uh, uh, and infrastructure protection course, I think is the name of the course that DS teaches. And DS also has part of the, the six-week course. And in that six-week course, uh, you know, there's there's different blocks of instruction and different agencies participate in those blocks of instruction during the, the executive development course. Michael, who's teaching the courses on behalf of DS? Is it contractors or? Cause 
No, no. It's uh, usually agents from uh, from the training center. Oh, they come out. It's usually it's usually active duty agents from the, from the from the training center. Uh, as a matter of fact, they the the agents who are teaching uh, BSACers uh, protection were the same agents that came to uh, ILEA to teach their protection course. Okay. So they come from yeah. So it's it's usually active duty agents. And here's another thing: for those six week courses, there is an um, an agent who is assigned to by their agency to spend the six weeks, the entire six weeks, basically as the coordinator, the the, the training coordinator. He's a liaison between the students and the ILEA themselves. And so the first couple of times that DS sent uh, some training coordinators, they were uh, retired annuitants, which is fine. I mean, you know, I'm a retiree now, so, you know, I, uh, I wish I could go back to ILEA, but darn it, that in, the director, me at the time, convinced DS that you needed to send active duty agents because those active duty agents could then make, uh, make contacts and so those contacts knew that they had somebody in DS. You know, I, I have a passport here. Who do I call in DS? Who can I who can I get in touch with? Or a DS agent, you know, in Houston who maybe has been gone has gone to ILEA as a training coordinator. Now he's got a investigation with a nexus, for instance, to uh, Chile. Well, who do I call in Chile? Well, I can call Colonel So and So in the in the Chilean National Police because I met him when I was the training coordinator at ILEA. So uh, I convinced DS that they needed to assign active duty agents rather than retired annuitants to to those training coordinator jobs, which uh, I think they're still doing. And I haven't seen any. There hasn't been no call. There's been no call for a retired annuitant to do it since I retired. I can tell you that. <laughs> so I, you know, it's a good way for those um, international students to make contacts with U.S. law enforcement and vice versa. Yeah. Sounds like it. All right. Well, then, we, we uh, talked to uh, – uh, go ahead. No, please. I was going to say another thing I did is we had a little bit of money left over one one year. And the – well, not one year. The the way the money works with those – with ILEA, because it's a foreign assistance program, it's five-year money. So I was spending money that had been allocated, appropriated to ILEA five years before I got there. And so one year – uh, I uh, convinced uh, my minders back in Washington to reallocate money, reappropriate it, I should say, and we uh, installed a huge solar panel uh, project so that the entire parking lot is covered with solar panels and we're actually generating electricity for uh, the facility and some of it's going back into the power grid in El Salvador now because the government was responsible for paying the electric bill and they, the uh, Salvadoran government and one month they didn't have, (laughs) they didn't have the money to pay the bill. So as a result, I convinced the headquarters to let me install the, the power grid, the solar panels. So, so now, uh, you know, it's uh, not only generating electricity for the facility, alleviating that burden uh, to the host government for paying the electric bill, which is tremendous, mind you, because it's a huge facility. It's it's the size of a small community college, but it also, uh, they're selling the uh, energy back to the, to the, to the government. So 
Sounds like you definitely made your mark. I made make my mark. That your legacy. Yeah, my name, yeah. my, my name's on, on a plaque on the on the on the wall there on on the cornerstone. So unless they uh, scratch it off, it's going to be there for a while. <laughs> yeah. All right, and uh, and so you ended up in Houston. You you mentioned earlier uh, got sent back, had some medical issues, and went from soup to sack. Right. Yep. Uh, exactly. And, uh, you know, like I said, I was a, a, the unit supervisor, uh, you know, actually it, I enjoyed being a unit supervisor because I actually would go out, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of Spanish speakers in Houston, uh, suspects, I should put it that way, subjects of investigations and not that many, uh, uh, agents in the field office at the time who actually spoke Spanish. And so I would go out on operations with the human trafficking uh, uh, group. I forget what they call it, but um, in Houston. But uh, you know, it was a uh, a multi jurisdictional uh, organization with Houston police and uh, Harris County sheriffs and you know different uh, federal agencies. So I'd actually go out on raids with them and. They'd gather up the the suspects and the and the girls, and I would interview the girls in Spanish because the Houston police officers couldn't speak Spanish of all things. I just had to laugh at that, but still, I enjoyed being a unit supervisor because I would I would get out of the office more, uh, and I would I actually assign myself some cases too, so I could I would assign myself the easy cases, mind you, the ones that like the. The uh, the Hague Convention cases where we're looking for kids who, who whose parents have absconded with them from overseas, I would assign those cases to to myself and go look for those kids myself. And then uh, then when I came became a sack, then I started pushing uh, shuffling more paper. So it wasn't quite as fun being a sack, but again, like I said, I I like being in charge, so it was it was better for me to be in that position. So you know, and it was more commensurate with my rank too. Right. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, you're uh, you're the second person on the podcast, but you are the most will be the most senior, I imagine, for a while, uh, agent or former agent. Say that again. So you'll be the most. You're the most senior agent, as in uh, 27 years. Oh, okay. And, I mean, and, and yeah. I think you'll probably be there. Well, I have a I have a lineup of people I'm going to talk to, not just agents, but but uh, you know. You and I had met just so. What you're saying is, I'm I'm gray of ha- gray of hair and long of tooth. That's what you're saying, basically, <laughs> in a complimentary <laughs> fashion. Is what I'm. That's how I'm saying. Uh, but but you know, and, and I, have, I have a lineup of, of people I want to talk to, and some have committed already. And uh, uh, but when you and I had messaged back and forth, and and I thought I wanted to jump you in front just because, uh, you know, of your well many years of experience. You know, and so so I guess my, uh, let's end with this. Uh, what advice would you have for new agents, uh, you know, brand new to the field office because you were a SAC and or aspiring DS agents coming in? So aspiring DS agent, I would say uh, watch international news as much as you can. Uh, read The Economist, uh, uh, you know, as often as you can. Uh, remember that the job is not strictly a law enforcement job. It's uh, a lot of diplomacy. And when you go through the uh, the board of examiners, the BECS panel, you're not going to be uh, asked strictly, you know, law enforcement questions. There's going to be a lot of international uh, 
relations and, you know, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, diplomacy, question about diplomacy, et cetera. So um, that's why I would say for aspiring agents, for new agents on the job, you know, <laughs> I, I want to, kind of go back to where I was like when I first came on the job as a, as a rookie police officer, uh, I would say, you know, keep your eyes open and your ears open and your mouth shut until you learn what you're doing. Because, uh, you need, you, you have ideas on how to do things that, that might be right. And there might be times that you see that we need to make changes there's a way to approach people with, with those ideas. Uh, but I guess what I'm saying here is, you know, tr- try to learn from people who've been on the job for a while before you, b- before you want to change things. Uh, there's a reason why we do things. Sometimes it's, if you ask me why, if you ask somebody, why are we doing it this way? It's, if the answer is because we've always done it this way, well, you know, that's a wrong answer. But uh, there are times when we have to do things a certain way that you they're not necessarily what you learned in training, but it's what you have to do in real life, if that makes sense. And right. what you learn in training, what you learn in training in BSAC, uh, once you get to the field office, you need to put those put that training uh, into practice. But there's always going to tweak it a little bit. A field office is going to tweak it a little bit to fit their field office, and then you you know you're going to go off on a on a on a TDY, and you're going to tweak a little bit of what you learned in BSAC when you're on that TDY. So I guess the idea I'm trying to get across is training is one thing; the job in real life is another. Training prepares you, but the field office actually makes you an agent. Wise right. words, sir. I would right. agree. <laughs> yeah. I think that's it's especially important uh, when you get overseas and you start working with, for example, these local guard commanders that have been there for 20 years. And you're going to get a lot of that. We've always done it this way. And we'll, we'll, wait, we'll wait you out because you'll be leaving in two years. And if uh, yeah. you, know, you see something's wrong and it's not being done the right way or it can be done more efficient you know, uh, step in. But to that point, to your point, sit back and watch for a while, you know, wait and see. There may be a reason beyond that, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. And well, a lot of it has to, a lot of it has to do with rules and regulations and, uh, and laws with which we, with which we have to comply. So, you know, there's things that, that you just have to do it because the, the foreign affairs manual says you have to do it that way sometimes. So, yeah. Well, Michael, this was awesome. Well, I hope so. I mean, you know, the, the if there's anything that I enjoy, there's nothing I enjoy more than talking about diplomatic security. That's for sure. I think it's a fantastic organization. It's not for everybody, but if it's if you're the kind of person that can adapt to the travel, that can adapt to uh, overseas, they can adapt to wearing a suit one day and you know wearing grubbies the next day. Then, then it's a fantastic job for for you and I. And uh, 
I, I, I just can't imagine having done anything else for the last 27 years. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons for this podcast is, uh, I think, uh, it's, it's such a cool career and no one really knows about us. And, uh, obviously I like telling stories. I wrote a book with a few stories and I, uh, I think most DS agents do like telling stories because you come into so many, just so many different things that you don't, you wouldn't experience in in another federal law enforcement agency. Um, But with that, sitting out on the the planes, what's that? Sitting out on, sitting out on the plains of Africa, having some wine while you're watching uh, a herd of elephants. And if I hadn't gotten on the job, I never would have had that opportunity. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. You know, I, you know, I, I got to go now, but I only got to go because I want to go check out this uh, Sri Lankan, the the Tamil Tigers videos you <laughs> you set up. Yeah, that what this conference call yeah. that I'm supposed to be on. I want to I want to go watch that. But uh, and I anyway, would and I, I would you know uh, I would certainly say that if if people want to get in touch with me through your you know through Instagram, uh, you know I'm I'm I'm. Uh, happy to talk to anybody who wants to talk, you know, know more about DS. So put them in touch well, with gonna, me through uh, Instagram if you want to. So very kind of you. Yeah. I'm going to tag you uh, in this and, and promote it. So, you know, I don't have a lot of followers, but the ones that do follow are, are really good and have a lot of really good questions. So thank you for doing this, sir. And uh, we'll sign off now, but I'll ask you to just sit tight real quick. All right. Okay. Thank you, sir. All right, everyone. That was Michael Perkins former DSS special agent. So thank you to Michael for coming on. Thanks for everyone for listening. Uh, for those of you that are interested in contacting Michael, uh, his handle on Instagram is at DSS Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L. And you can shoot him a message and he'll be happy to chat with you. Uh, for those of you that have other questions uh, that you want to hear from me, go ahead and shoot me a, a message on Instagram. I'm at agentsunknown underscore book. You can also hit me up info at codyperron.com or on YouTube where I post uh, multiple videos about diplomatic security and uh, just kind of life as a DSS agent. So for those of you who haven't read my book, it is on my website. Again, codyperron.com. It's available in paperback, Kindle, and now on Audible, where you can hear this voice for several hours. So anyway, thanks everyone for uh, listening. Thanks for the support as always. Greatly appreciated. And y'all take care. Thanks y'all. Bye.